All right, uh, it is uh, time to open God's Word together. So if you do have a Bible with you this morning, I want to uh, invite you and encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, we are continuing our study of the life and faith of Abraham as it is recorded for us in chapters 12 to 25 in the book of Genesis. And today we come to chapter 15. And I just have to say that this chapter is one of the high points not just in the life of Abraham, but really in all of Scripture. And the reason I say that is because this passage helps us understand the nature of faith in general, but also the nature of saving faith in particular. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. We're in Genesis 15, and I'm going to read just verses 1 to 6 for you this morning. This is God's Word. And this is what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And you can have a seat. Well, we sometimes refer to Abraham as Father Abraham, and this is not because he was a fatherly figure of some sort, but because the New Testament refers to him as the father of all who believe. So Galatians chapter 3 puts it this way, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If we have that faith, we are the children of Abraham. Romans chapter 4 says something similar. It says, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So if Abraham is the father of faith, it's worth exploring what that means. I mean, what does it mean to have faith? Is it like the the little boy in Sunday school who was asked to give a definition of faith and responded uh, to that question by saying, well, faith is believing something even when you know it isn't true. That's the way some people think about faith. It's sort of this irrational leap into the unknown. It's not the faith that we see in Abraham. So what was the nature of his faith? Was it a blind faith? We might further wonder, well, just how much faith did he have? Or how much faith do we need to have to be his children? 
we consider the faith of Abraham was the thing of greatest importance that he had so much faith or that his faith was in the right object. So out of this very short passage, I want to draw out four things that we ought to understand about faith. And the first one is simply the observation that sometimes the hardest part about maintaining faith is simply the passing of time. First words of chapter 15 simply say, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, we don't know exactly how much time has transpired since the events of chapter 14 that we looked at last week. All of chapter 15 is taken up with a dialogue between Abram and the Lord. And we know that by the time we get to chapter 16, Abraham will tell us or that it's been 11 years, or we'll learn there that it's been 11 years since he first received his call back in chapter 12. So pinpointing the events of chapter 15 on a timeline between his calling in chapter 12 and what happens in chapter 16 isn't an exact science, but it's probably been about 10 years Since he was first called by the Lord and God promised him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, ten years can seem like a long time. I was looking at some pictures last week from about ten years ago. And it's amazing how quickly life seems to pass by at this stage. Ten years almost seems like nothing. But it's different when you're waiting for something, right? When you're waiting for something, then it seems like time moves so slowly. Remember when I was home from college uh, one summer and looking for work, I ended up working for a temp agency for about a month. And the way it worked was that uh, every day I would just show up and they would send you out on different assignments, maybe for just the day or a couple days or maybe a little bit longer than that. And one of the assignments I was sent out on was to go work at, at uh, the Nintendo warehouse out in Richmond. And I ended up being there a full week. My job for that week, for eight hours a day, was assembling boxes for Nintendo game cartridges. There were cases and cases of boxes. And, and what we did is we took the, the boxes out of those cases, we folded them, we stuffed a piece of styrofoam into them, and then we folded another box. All the while, the oldies station played on the warehouse radio. Those eight hours seemed like an eternity to me. When you're waiting for something or when you're enduring some type type of trial, the passing of time is a testing thing. Waiting for a promise to be fulfilled, waiting for a trial to pass can test your faith in significant ways. Andrew Fuller provided helpful insight when he said it's not under the sharpest but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. See, it's not just the magnitude of the trial that we might face. Sometimes it's the length of time we have to endure it that becomes so exhausting. We could think of the example of Job. You will remember that when Job met a series of calamities in quick succession... He handled them well, but then when he could see no end to his troubles, he began to sink under the weight of them. And some of you have been there. I mean, you've encountered a crisis in life. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. 
Maybe it was a severe illness or the breakdown of a relationship. Maybe it was the inability to conceive. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe a bout with depression. Maybe just an extended period of silence from God. And initially, you were hopeful that things would change. But then as the days turned to weeks and the weeks turned to months and the months turned to years, it became almost unbearable. The passing of time can make it difficult to maintain faith, especially when there's a long delay between promise and fulfillment. This is what Abraham was dealing with here. Lord, I, I did what you asked. I mean, I left my security set out for an unknown place, but it's been 10 years now. And the reality is that this is where most of our lives are lived, in that period between promise and fulfillment. So what are we supposed to do in the midst of our waiting? How do we maintain faith between promise and fulfillment? Well, I think one thing we can learn from Abram's experience is that faith is strengthened by meditating on the character of God. Listen again to verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So the first thing that God says to Abram in this vision is, fear not, don't be afraid. And that little phrase, fear not, is one of the Bible's most repeated phrases. I've heard it said that that little phrase, fear not, occurs 366 times in the Bible, which means there is one fear not for every day of the year, including leap year. Now, I don't know if that's the exact number or not, but I do know that we are told over and over again not to be afraid. Fear not. Now, we might wonder why in this case God begins his address to Abraham with those words. Why does he tell him, don't be afraid, fear not? Well, it might be the case that God needed to say this because that, that, that would be a natural response to an encounter with him, even if it's mediated through a vision. Natural response would be fear. The account in Revelation chapter 1, when the apostle John has an encounter with the risen Jesus, is representative of the kind of thing we read many times throughout the Bible as people have encounters with God. In Revelation 1, it says, or John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. It could also be that God begins by saying, fear not, because if you remember, Abraham has just led a covert military operation against a group of four allied kings. He's gone and he's rescued his nephew Lot, and he accomplished all of that with just his 318 trained men. So Abraham might be fearing reprisal from Keterleomer and his cronies. That would be a natural thing to be afraid of. And the first thing God says after fear not is, I am your shield. So God might just be reassuring Abram of his earlier promise. He's going to bless those who bless him. And the one who curses him, he will curse. God is our protector. There's nothing to be afraid of. Keeping the background of chapter 14 in mind, it might also be that God begins with this word of assurance, fear not. Because Abram has just rejected the offer of the king of Sodom. 
Abram's declaration that he would not take a thread or even the strap of a sandal from the king of Sodom and that his dependence would be utterly on the Lord was a high point of Abram's faith. But maybe now the reality of what that looks like in practical terms in a land that doesn't belong to him is starting to settle in. And so and God gives him this further assurance. His reward will be very great. So God is our protector. God is our provider. We do not need to be afraid. So all of those things might have necessitated God's words to him, fear not. But I suspect the main reason God begins with this word of assurance is because God knows what Abram's greatest fear is. He knows exactly what Abram is about to say. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Whatever other fears he faced, Abram's greatest fear was that the promise he was given would not come to pass. And I find God's words to Abram to be instructive. God says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, we've already explored the fear not part, but there's a lot in this sentence. I find it interesting just to to note that when God addresses his people, he often begins with a bit of self-revelation. So here he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And you'll find this pattern of self-revelation all over the place. Maybe you remember this example from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments begin like this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before God gives his people his law, he reminds them of his relationship to them. And this is what he does with Abram here as well. Fear not, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I think we also ought to see the way God's words convey both past experience and future potential. So the disclaimer that we find on most advertisements for financial products is something like past performance is no guarantee of future results. So investment companies, mutual fund companies, they include that disclaimer as a way to cover their backsides, right? Right? What they want to say is, look, our mutual funds have performed well in the past, but there's no guarantee that they will do so this year or any year for that matter. God is actually saying the opposite to Abram. God tells Abram, I am your shield. Now, if you were Abram, you would have an immediate context to understand those words and the significance of those words. In in just the few weeks we've been exploring the story of Abraham, we've already seen a couple of examples where he experienced that very thing, God as his protector. He protected him in Egypt when Pharaoh sought to take his wife into his harem. Most recently... We saw how God helped him escape the conflict with the alliance of the northern kings unscathed. So calling to mind his experience with God as his shield or his protector, his protection was supposed to fuel his trust in what God says next. And what God says next is, your reward shall be very great. 
See, God is telling him that, in fact, past performance is a guarantee of future results. Just as I promised to be your protector and have shown myself to be so, so your reward shall be very great. Now, look, this is not to say that all of us are promised what Abraham was promised. Abraham was given some very specific promises. But it is to say that we can trust the promises of God. Part of the way we learn to grow in our trust of his promises is to reflect back on his past performance. I'm not talking about presuming upon the grace of God. What I mean is that we ought to be constantly calling to mind God's blessings, his mercies in our lives, the places he's met us, the ways he's protected us or provided for us. So we started a a new community group this fall, and one of the things we've been doing just as a way to get to know each other better in that group is we've been sharing, uh, taking turns, sharing our testimonies with one another. And this hasn't been the usual sort of two or three minute version of a testimony. People have shared at great length all the ways throughout their lives that God has met them, that God has intervened or protected them or provided for them. This is such an important practice for us to do. We ought to take to heart the words from the old Christian chorus that say, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, you'll be amazed what God has done. So one way to bolster our faith is to remember all the ways God has met us, all the ways he has provided for us, all the ways he has intervened in our lives. Another way is to meditate on all that God has promised that he will do for us. Now, we're going to come back to Abram's questions in a couple of minutes, but I want you to notice what God does in response to Abram's questions. Look at verses 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So why does God lead Abram outside and have him look up at the night sky? Well, he wants to give him a picture, right? You understand the importance of this. I mean, if you've ever looked at a recipe book, you understand just how powerful a picture can be. I mean, reading a printed recipe might cause you to say, oh, that that sounds kind of good. But when you see the picture of the food, I mean, you, your, your salivary glands just kind of ramp up production, right? I want to eat that now. This is what God does for him. He brings him out. He says, look at the night sky. This is what I'm going to do for you. And this is how we ought to approach the promises of God. They ought to fuel our faith. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 21, where God, where it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain ever, anymore. For the former things have passed away. See, that picture of what awaits us ought to be something that fuels our faith. We ought to meditate on the promises of God. 
Third thing we learn here is that genuine faith does not mean an absence of questions. So I got into a rental vehicle this week, and the radio was tuned to a country station. Now, I'm, I'm not a country music guy. I know those are fighting words in Cloverdale. Some of you think there's only two types of music, country and western, and I'm not sure that either one qualifies as music. In any case, Country Station was on. The first song that came on while I was driving, I hadn't figured out how to change the station yet, was a song called Jersey on the Wall. And I was intrigued by the lyrics. The song, as best I can understand it, is about a high school student killed in a car accident. It's not country music if it's not depressing, right? The second verse and the chorus of that song go like this. I bet somewhere there's a yearbook in a box under a bed with a senior picture missing in loving memory instead. And somewhere there's a mother who stopped going to church because your plan quit making sense down here on earth. And then the chorus says, if I ever get to heaven, you know I got a long list of questions. Like, how do you make a snowflake? Are you angry when the earth quakes? How does the sky change in a minute? How do you keep this big rock spinning? And why can't you stop a car from crashing? Forgive me, I'm just asking. Well, it's a little hard for me to discern the spirit behind that song. I mean, is it just an honest series of questions? Or is it a series of accusations? And there's a world of difference between those types of questions. Now, Abram had his own questions. I mean, he hears God's word of assurance. And then he says this in verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. He's got questions. Now, Abraham was not simply looking for an heir. There was a lot lot at stake in this for Abraham. As one commentator noted, Abraham was not simply looking for an heir to whom he could leave what he had accumulated. Eliezer of Damascus would have served that purpose. Nor was he simply in love with babies in search of a cuddly Abram Jr. with a heart-melting smile. Abram wanted to know if God's promises could be trusted. That was what, that's what was on the line for him. These are actually the first recorded words we have that Abraham says to God. But you get a sense of his posture just by the way he begins his dialogue. Oh, Lord God. Or, oh, sovereign God. See, these are not the questions of a skeptic. These are the honest questions of faith. And Dale Ralph Davis notes the difference between those two things when he says this. Unbelief spits on promises. Only faith struggles over them. Unbelief dismisses promises. Only faith debates them with God. This is what we see with Abraham. This is what he's doing. He's wrestling in his faith. It's not that there's an absence of questions. And in fact, if you've read through the Bible, then you know that Abram wasn't alone in having both faith and questions. David begins Psalm 13 like this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In a similar way, the prophet Jeremiah had his own questions based on what he saw taking place around him. He said, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Last spring, we did a series on the Old Testament book, Habakkuk, and that book begins like this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Look, you have no doubt asked these types of questions. Sometimes we look around the world and it looks like the wrong people are prospering, or that justice is not being done as it should be, or that God's promises aren't being fulfilled. So what do we do with that? I think Ian Duguid is right when he says this, even doubting thoughts and feelings that border on sin are better laid out before the gracious eyes of the Lord than nursed in our hearts. God will not be shocked. He knows our inmost thoughts anyway. So look, God wasn't shocked by what Abram said here. He wasn't surprised. And bringing these questions before God is an act of faith. That simple phrase, oh, sovereign Lord, is a way of saying, look, I may not understand everything, but I know that you're, in, you're still in control. So having faith or genuine faith does not mean an absence of questions. The final thing we ought to understand from this passage is that only faith can make us right with God. And this is what we see in verse 6. Verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, this is transactional language, but it's a really interesting transaction. The word righteousness is used in different ways throughout the Bible. At times, it refers to right conduct or right behavior, the doing of righteous deeds or acts. That's righteousness. That's not the way the word is being used here. This verse is not saying Abraham believed God and God counted that as good behavior. The word righteousness is also used to mean having a right standing or a right relationship with God. And that's the way the the word is being used here. And what the verse says is that Abram placed his faith in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term. God counted it to him or credited it to him or reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, he didn't possess righteousness on his own because of his good behavior. God credited righteousness to him because of his faith. And this is the only hope we have before God. If it were up to us and our behavior, our ability to do the right thing, none of us would measure up to God's demands. 
But Jesus has met all of God's demands. And when we place our faith in him, his righteousness is credited, imputed to us. Here's how the Apostle Paul recounts this event from the life of Abraham and what it pointed to. Here's what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God... And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. So one of the questions I mentioned earlier was how much faith is enough? I mean, Abram had great faith. We've seen it. But also, as we've seen along the way, his faith faltered at times. He had questions at times. So how much faith is enough? What we need to understand from this verse is that it was not the amount of his faith that was ultimately determinative. It was the object of his faith. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it or counted it to him as righteousness. I remember being tremendously helped in my understanding of this by an illustration that was shared by Don Carson. He came and preached at, at Willingdon a number of years back. I've heard him give this same illustration elsewhere, but he said this. He was talking about the Passover. He said, picture two Jews by the names Smith and Brown. Remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't need to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood and put blood on the lintel? Haven't you done that? You're already packed to go. You're going to eat the whole Passover meal with your whole family. Of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think about all the things that have happened around here lately. Flies and a river turning to blood. It's pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. It's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says. And I've put the blood there. But it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death didn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of their faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. See, this is how it is for us as well. Our righteousness is not determined by the intensity of our faith, but by the object of our faith. And our faith is in the perfect Son of God, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we place our faith in Him, even though we falter at times, that faith is credited to us as righteousness. This is the great exchange that has taken place. And I think this leads us naturally into our time of communion this morning. I mean, this is really what we are celebrating at communion. We are celebrating the fact that it's not on the basis of our righteousness, our attempts to please God through all of our good works, that we have a right standing before God. The reason we have a right standing before God is because Jesus has given us his righteousness. And when we place our faith in him, it's on that basis that we come before God. So I'm going to read you those words that we read each week at communion. And you just might want to think about them in the, in the light of, of this, that our righteousness comes from what Jesus has done for us. And that he's the object of our faith. So Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, what we're doing as we celebrate communion is we are proclaiming the Lord's death on our behalf. Now look, there's nothing magical about taking communion. There's nothing that, you know, we take the bread and put it in the wine or the juice. There's nothing in that, in that act itself that saves us. What we're doing as we celebrate communion is we are demonstrating this is the nature of our faith, that our faith does not reside in ourselves And our performance, our faith rests in the one who gave his life as a sacrifice and a substitute for us. And so if that is where you are at in your journey with the Lord, then we invite you to participate along with us in this declaration of faith. My faith is in Jesus, the one who gave himself up for me. So I'm going to pray and then we'll celebrate together. God, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that if it were left up to us, uh, we would not have a hope of standing before you. But because of what Jesus has done, you credit our faith to us as righteousness. And so we come today, Lord, in the midst of a week where we have no doubt turned away from you in different ways. But we thank you that we are able to approach your throne of grace with boldness because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.